This is Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast for writers and readers by writers and readers. Hello and welcome to Dissecting Dragons. I'm Madeleine Vaughan. And I'm Jules Ironside. This week, The Economy of Boots, exploring wealth and poverty in speculative fiction. Now, I do feel like we need to just say, when we talk about boots, we are not talking about the pharmaceutical brand. I was literally thinking that. I was just thinking, oh, you've said this, and guess what? People in the UK are going to go, boots the chemist? <laughs> and the slightly better informed ones who've listened to the Jane Austen episode are going to go, boots the once travelling library, but now a chemist. <laughs> um, no, that's not what we're talking about. Um, Alas. Um, yeah, this episode is, I think we've kind of touched on poverty before, but I very specifically want to look at um, wealth, poverty and and how it's explored in speculative fiction. And this has come mm. from two things. Um, I've been obviously reading. When am I not reading? Honestly, What? You reading? <laughs> I know, I read. Um, <laughs> and I, there's, there's two things that kind of sort of well there's one thing that particularly bugged me and that is uh, supposedly broke characters who somehow managed to live like they're, they're the top one percent yeah and it, it's never explained it's all just conveniently i happen to have the money and I, I find it i'm finding it in urban fantasy a broke character who can't make their rent but somehow still has a hundred dollars in their pocket for a bribe and it's just you know, if I've got to the point where I can't actually afford my rent, then I'm probably not eating at that point, you know? Yeah. So um, that there's that, the, the poor world-building aspect. Uh, mm. Also, it's something that's been explored recently. There was a, an interesting Guardian article which talked about someone who had been looking at, you know, the, the cost, the true cost of inflation to the people, the genuine... Um, the people who are genuinely living above on or below the poverty line in the UK yeah, um, and elsewhere. And what it means when, you know, a tin of beans goes from costing 39 pence to costing 99 pence, mm. which is a huge increase in terms of percentage. I mean, if you, you're someone who's got a re reasonable income, then paying 99 pence is just kind of like, well, that's got a bit expensive, but eh, I can still buy six tins of beans. Yes. If you are making below minimum wage and you're a single mother and you know you're already living in a, a council house you're already having to dip into um food you know uh food bins and things because yeah you're having to shop around six shops to get a loaf of bread that is you know perhaps two days older than it should be yeah but is within budget that entire sort of 60 pence increase in price is a huge leap Yes. And it's the sort of inflation that isn't felt by people who are relatively well off or even by people who are making a, a decent income, but they're not at all wealthy. Mm. Um, so this is this is something that this, this person was sort of exploring and they were putting it all together because something really needs to be done to address this issue. Mm. Um, and with the... <laughs> Basically, with the approval of Terry Pratchett's estate, maintained by Rihanna Pratchett, his daughter, mm -hmm. um, they named it, you know, the Boots, the, the Vimes Boots Theory of Economy. And I'm going to paraphrase it because obviously I don't have, I don't have permission from the Pratchett estate to quote this verbatim. 
Um, so basically it's, it's in one of the guards books Vimes is meditating on the fact that you know he's just doing his beat and he's walking around and he's thinking you know his boots need to be replaced again mm. and then he's sort of thinking maybe you know maybe that is why the rich are so wealthy because basically they're better at not spending money and initially that sounds like oh wow you know poor people are poor because they're, they're just frittering money away but it's not that at all mm. he's thinking along the lines that a good pair of leather boots costs in Ankhmore pork money about fifty dollars yeah and they will last you for years if you can spend that on them Vimes himself makes thirty eight dollars a month plus you know expenses which mm. is nowhere near the cost of a pair of boots so he'd have to go without or save up for months in order to buy a, a set a pair of leather boots yeah or you can spend three or four dollars and get a pair with sort of cardboard soles which will last you one or two months yeah. and it, it's the fact that if you are poor and you cannot afford that initial outlay to get something good quality that's going to last you for years then you are going to spend far more continually replacing or continually bringing on board the things that you basically just need to live mm. than a rich person would just because they happen to be able to go oh i can spend 50 ankhmore pork dollars on a pair of boots yeah no i remember this um uh, i remember that anthology not not anthology uh an analogy sorry yeah <laughs> having a moment um and it, it is incredibly powerful and a lot of people have cited that you know terry pratchett has been able to explain poverty in a way that uh <laughs> that uh um, lots that um you know economists have never been able to do yeah and there is a, there's a great element of truth to it it's very very well thought out um and straight to the point really i mean that was one of the beauties you know the beauty of the way that terry pratchett actually wrote is that he had a very realistic view of the world yeah i think it's an incredibly astute portrayal because mm. it's some there's something that, that everybody can get their head around it's not yeah. hidden behind figures and numbers and things it's not hidden behind the idea of the deserving and the undeserving poor which we will get into later yeah um it's it's just this idea that the cost of being poor is more expensive than the cost of being wealthy. And that cost is not necessarily something you can measure in money specifically, although you absolutely can put a price tag on it. Yeah, absolutely. It It's an interesting thing as well, because it's not about vilifying in any respect. It's about taking a practical view of exactly what's happening and i think so often when these kinds of discussions get brought up people get defensive and people kind of start to feel like they're being attacked on on all sides um rather than saying actually no this isn't because of anyone doing certain things necessarily though obviously We'll talk, that's a slightly different issue, but we'll talk about that in a minute. Um, but rather that, you know, it's just a reality as well. As you said, that, you know, the, the vilified, uh, the vilified poor, the, you know, people who, who were vilified for not having a lot of money, which sounds remarkable and yet is exactly what happens. Um, 
you know, to be told, oh, well, it's it's because, you, you know, as you said, people who are wealthy don't spend as much money and because they don't have to. Yeah. In the long run. Uh, and I suppose, I mean, as we will get into, there's this entire mindset as well behind it, because if you've got enough money that you can afford to buy a good quality item from the outset, mm. then what you tend to do is go through your life buying the best that you can afford and then really looking after it. And this is just sort of people on the mid-level who've got, a, you know, that they're managing quite comfortably. They, they haven't got bags and bags of money, but they're, they're managing. Yeah. Whereas if you've never had a lot of money, then you might be able to scrape up a one-time thing for a huge purchase on something like, you know, the whole thing with the suddenly it, they can't afford the rent, but there's a flat screen TV or an iPhone or what have you. Yeah. Um, because that's that's something that you... It, it's in terms of understanding the value of things. Mm. And, you know, you're... It, it's, that's where it becomes a complicated issue to do with mindset and things. But, you know, you're not going to spend loads and loads of money on a pair of shoes when you can just buy a cheap pair of shoes, even though you're probably going to have to replace those shoes in six months' time. Yeah. Well, it's also the other thing of, you know my massive issue with things like fast fashion is that suddenly actually it is cheap to buy these things because they're made cheap and of course the problem is that that's actually reinforcing poverty elsewhere yeah um you know so there's several there's several layers to it it makes me think and i've just forgotten the the title for it It, it's that very silly movie with um eddie murphy uh, trading places or something uh, like yeah. that yeah it is trading places it is trading places i watched it recently and i actually i actually kind of enjoyed it but the thing that always gets me in that one is you have this this moment where initially uh eddie murphy he goes to the bar he gets everyone to come in with him and then he gets increasingly annoyed at them just messing about in his house yeah um and we were, you know, we were talking about it. And I think, you know, you know, a lot of people have sort of interpreted this as, oh, he's become really snooty. You know, wealth changes you. And for me, I felt like it was actually more along the lines of for the first time in his life, he had something which was worth something, if that yeah, makes sense. That was worth looking after. It was worth looking after. Um, and up until that point, it didn't matter if people were coming in and wrecking stuff because there was nothing in in the house which was worth caring for because it 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 was already a wreck you know and now finally he has something um and you see it all the time and and i used to see it you know with people who would you know have perhaps everything else that they had they owned wasn't you know that great but they'd have one thing which was expensive and they would really really care about it and weirdly enough i i saw it particularly with the way certain people you know i i I grew up where there were some very very wealthy people around and then there were some less wealthy people around um and the way that they treated their things was very very different but in particular, I remember how sometimes when people would just very carelessly break something that belonged to someone else, 
they would then sort of be like, why are you getting so upset? You know, you can just replace it and not understand that some things you don't just replace, some things you get and you get with the understanding that, that that's it. You are not going to get anything else like that, anything else which is going to be as high a quality as that for a very, very, very long time. Yeah. Um, it is not something which is just replaced. You know? Yeah, yeah definitely. Um, anyway, uh, so poverty is the number one problem any individual, family, community or society faces. I don't think that's an overstatement. Um, it's, it's an insidious thing and mm. it, it kind of hides behind many, many faces and guises. Mm. Uh, but it's actually more widespread than any prejudice or any issue around a, a, a prejudice. And quite often it goes hand in hand with some of them and is actually the root of some of them. Yes. Um, it can, Basically, it cuts off the roots of human opportunity. Uh, if you want a conspiracy theory that actually has origins, in fact, look at poverty. I'm not saying there's a cabal of rich people sitting around saying, how can we pe keep people ground into the dirt? But the attitude of certain very, very wealthy individuals who... It's not so much that they refuse to share their wealth, but they they make deliberate decisions that will keep other people down in order to benefit themselves, I think, is the thing. Yeah. And if you have enough people doing that, and it doesn't actually have to be very many. <laughs> no. There's a reason the top 1% are only a 1% uh, for it to have a really big trickle-down effect. It's an incredibly yeah. complicated problem and a difficult one to address. And it's not as simple as, yes, let's redistribute wealth, because that's it's it's just not that straightforward. There's, as we will go into in a minute, there's a whole sort of mindset and... Um, a system. A system. Well, yeah, there's a system. But the trouble is nobody's running the system, I think, is the problem. No, but I feel like years and years of, you know, things, certain things being put in place... You know, you can't just erase what the damage of that all those years have done and how they have shaped certain institutions. No, absolutely, you can't. Um, but I don't think there's anybody really driving this bus anymore, which is even more terrifying. No, no to, to be honest, I to be honest, I do think I do think there are people who are trying to maintain the bus, but I don't think anyone's driving it. Yeah, I I completely agree with that. So. There we are. We're basically in speed two on a bus that's... Is it a bus in speed two? Anyway, we're in speed. We're in one of the films, the one with the bus. The bus is hurtling <laughs> towards conclusion. We've got to keep it at a certain speed or everything blows up. Um, we are hurtling. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. Most chillingly, there are people who are not necessarily wealthy people either, who are genuinely willing to set the the have-nots of society against each other under flags of political ideology because it suits them not to have everyone notice how much wealth they're making off the back of it. Yes. Naming no names, but there is a specific organisation that is very invested in promoting the idea that black people have always had a, a victim status rather than looking at the genuine social issues and how we can deal with them and make them better. They are really, really invested in keeping people wed to this narrative and 
or not only wed to the narrative but wed to it in a way that means that they should reject anything else as being as being racist basically um, and nobody's really looking at their books and if we were looking at the books of this particular organization I think we would all be disgusted and horrified how much money they've made mm. and they're not the only example I'd like to say they are, but they're not. Uh, you, it, it's not just in terms of race, it's in terms of uh, the LGBTQ movement and yeah. various other political bodies as well. Yeah, well, to be honest, whenever any of these sort of things come up, there is always going to be someone making money off of it. Yeah. Um, and I mean, don't get the, me that's wrong. That's the disgusting part of it. <laughs> the thing is, if you have a skill or a talent and you are making a living off it, mm-hmm. there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. If you are devoting hours and hours of your time and your life to advancing something, there is absolutely nothing wrong with you making a living wage off that. Yeah, completely I do agree. object to decentralised and, to be honest, any political body that is making billions, shall we say, in all, which is then thrown not to the people they purport to be helping, but behind political leadership groups in order to sway political power. I'm trying to be very careful about not stepping on anyone's toes here in an offensive way, because that's yeah. not what we're talking about. So that's why I'm being a bit oblique. But, you know, dig into it. Dig into your favourite political body and find out how clean their hands really are. Yeah, that's the problem with politics, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> and all of its politics the, the, the water is muddied <laughs> the water is muddied and you know sometimes in order to get something done there's going to be a little bit of slightly dicey under the table dealing it's the nature of the world um, and nobody really trusts someone who cannot be bought on some level but on the other hand there's an awful lot of okay <laughs> you are way too easily bought going on yeah. there you genuinely don't care about other people at all uh, right, so what does this have to do with speculative fiction? Well, the basic human requirements are water, food, shelter, companionship, air, obviously, mm-hmm. and stories, believe it or not, that's a really important one. Of these items at the moment, only air is, is always free, and I'm sure they'd find a way to tax it if they could. Yes. <laughs> yes, I, 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 really, I really do think they probably would. <laughs> I seem to remember reading a dystopian novel about how you had to earn a certain number of credits a day in order to be able to breathe oxygen. And I'm like, that is the stupidest way to run an economy because loads of people are failing to meet the required number of credits. So you're just throwing them outside the dome and they're dying and they're not coming back the next day full of, you know, enthusiasm to work harder. They're just dead. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You'd have thought (laughs) killing people would make you like them, but no, it just makes them dead. Yes. Um, so, as okay, that's an extreme example. I'm not really convinced that novel particularly worked. But anything which is a huge deal in real life gets explored in speculative fiction, which is usually the dark mirror reflecting our own shortcomings back to us. So that's mm. a happy thought. Yay. <sighs> Sorry. <laughs> this, is, this is really cheery. <laughs> I think... You know, when we've laid it out and we sort of look at how bad the problem is, it's actually quite cheery because then you see 
actually there are ways that I can choose not to contribute to this and there are even ways I can choose to make things slightly better and if everybody started doing that yes then things, yeah. things would improve it, it's about you know not having your eyes shut to it not having your eyes shut to the fact that there's a good chance you're being manipulated it's one of those things as well though because I think one of the reasons that poverty is very very um difficult to handle and to deal with is that you know for example um amazon right yeah a lot of people have moral objections to amazon because of the way that workers are treated because of poverty issues you know because of and because of political feelings regarding jeff bezos and the amount of wealth that he has which some people believe no human being should possess that amount of wealth. It is counterproductive and pointless. Um, but, you know, you can say, right, well, the solution to this is not to buy from Amazon. Failing to recognise, of course, that for some people there is no real alternative. Yeah, there's it's, either... it's not just an issue of, right, well, I'm just going to make that choice. You know, and you can say, oh, yeah, you always have a choice. You can do that. And you're like, yes, but the fact is that it's very, very difficult to concentrate on universal matters when you yourself are in dire straits. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, uh, I guess the thing, um, if you want to take Amazon as an example, and we have to be careful here because we have to sell through Amazon. Yes. Well, that's the other thing is that, you know, I can I can say, well, yes, I disagree with this, that and the other. But Amazon has also helped indie authors in a way that, you know, no one else has ever no one else has ever managed to. Yeah. Um, So you can say, all right, well, avoid buying from Amazon. But then at the same time, there are there are actually plenty of um, whatchamacallit shops, uh, independent shops that sell through Amazon and independent creators that sell through Amazon that rely on it. So it it does start to get quite messy. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I, th- you know, I reiterate my point of, you know what, you can't necessarily solve everything, but you can be aware of it. Yeah. And that can make you choose better options in the future when you have better options, because half the time it's a deal with the devil and you don't actually have better options yeah um but being aware of it definitely helps and i agreed people find that uncomfortable but unfortunately that's one thing you should be a bit uncomfortable with it and you Mm. need to live with that discomfort in my opinion (laughs) Mm. um anyway we were talking about what does it have to do with speculative fiction um the wealth of the society is in integral to world building on both a grand and a humble scale so for example, are we looking at a utopian Star Trek Federation-esque future? If so, mm. that would be brilliant. Um, are we looking at the Expanse version where it's, it's really gone wrong? Um, the difference in a school setting between being a Weasley and being a Malfoy. Yeah. It feeds into everything. I mean, there's the, and the grinding poverty of the seam and the uncomfortable decadence of the capital in the Hunger Games trilogy. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I wouldn't necessarily say any of those examples are really about poverty or wealth. And yet poverty and wealth and the having or have nothing of it is is really 
important to sort of those those characters and their backgrounds and it feeds into their viewpoint which does affect their character journey and the overall plot Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely it one of the things is you know i have this is my issue i have many many problems with harry potter um and i obviously have certain issues with jk rowling um and yet i i do have to say that when it comes to certain things i think that she actually portrayed poverty in some respects very very well um you know i've heard some people you know feel like she hasn't done that but certainly for me the way she kind of she touched on on just certain ideas it felt very real to me yeah definitely i think the problem is you've got you get certain connotations with words if you say the yes. word wealth people it, if i say the word wealth and you're not immediately thinking of scrooge mcduck's money bin or a chest full of gleaming gems then um or, or even sort of like being having a huge house and maybe your own horse kind of thing yeah um, or if I say the word poverty and you're not immediately thinking of Dickensian orphans and being grubby and barefoot and yeah that um there's there's a huge um, scale in between obviously um, obviously between Dickens and Scrooge McDuck yes um, but you know you can be you can be going to a not a public school because that would be very expensive but a, a private school. And mm-hmm. you can be the least wealthy, well-off kid in the class. You can be there with other people who come from huge homes who have, or maybe they have several houses, who mm-hmm. have their own horses and things, and they can buy whatever they want. And their pocket money makes yours look like you scraped it out of the, the cushions on a sofa kind of thing. Yeah. Um, just that, just the fact that, you know what, your coat isn't the most fashionable one anymore. Um, it was okay three months ago, but now it's dead as corduroy kind of thing. But yeah. you're going to wear it for another two or three years so you grow out of it because you can't afford anything else. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and that's not necessarily poverty, poverty, but that's the difference between having money and not having money. It, It's one of those things. It's also... <laughs> I, I really didn't mean to get sort of political with one of these things. You know that whole, the, well, I say the joke. Um, I don't think it's a joke for some people. The whole eat the rich kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and how you've got so many people who, you know, who say eat the rich and then and then they're like, you know, that includes actors who are making a certain <laughs> amount of, a certain amount of money. And I just, I just want to turn around and say, look, yes, um, I... I can understand the frustration of hearing, you know, someone who who makes millions turning around and complaining about other sort of rich people. But there is a difference between being wealthy or having earned lots of money and earning wealth. Because I think, to be honest, everybody wants that. I don't think there's anyone, you know, who, who sort of looks around... And very seriously says, you know, I, you know, I want to live on seventy pounds a week. Yeah, I I want to live. Yeah, everyone has had that fantasy of winning the lottery, you know, or some equivalent. 
everyone has had that fantasy of going oh wouldn't it be great if i didn't have to go to work i could just or wouldn't it be great oh i would love to be an actor i would love to be able to just do this that and the other i'd love to i know one big fantasy that <laughs> every time i talk to sort of people about sort of what would you do if you had this amount of money and so many people would be like oh i take i i buy my mother a really nice gift or i'd pay off my parents mortgage or stuff like that and there's so many people who just think oh yeah i really want to spoil my parents i want to do this that and the other you know yeah um everybody wants that so i don't think i think the we can't demonize wealth we can't demonize the idea of having money because that's not the problem as it were um, and there's a big difference between someone who has, you know, right, I've I've made, you know, several, I'm, mil I'm a millionaire, someone who's a millionaire and someone who is a multi-billionaire. We're on different pages there. It, it's, it's, they're very different things. And people, to the point that actually, if you think about it, when you get to the multi-billions, we, the human brain pretty much cannot conceive of that amount of money. Yeah, uh, that's the thing, isn't it? And, you know, to put it in perspective, I think people sort of think that £100,000 is, is like quite close to a million. Well, obviously, it's closer than a £10 notice. But yes. 100000 is nowhere near a million. Uh, a million is £1,000,000. OK, uh, yeah. now, if we get into billions, we're talking of a million million. Yeah. Now, someone with 7 billion, 12 billion, 28 billion, it, it genuinely does get to the point where we literally cannot, well, unless you're some sort of mentat, <laughs> can compute it. It's just, you know, if you had a million pounds and you lived your own, you know, your lifestyle now, unless you're, you're, you live the life of a mega lush kind of thing. Um, yeah then yeah actually you could i could live my lifestyle comfortably on the interest of a million pounds because i am not an expensive person to run put it that no. way <laughs> but then also, also you have to bear in mind that i don't have children yeah absolutely. and i'm not trying to put them through university or through school or send them on school trips or whatever children are quite expensive I, are. I have you know i'm not living in a a ginormous mansion that needs that sort of upkeep um, but I could manage very comfortably off the interest of a million pounds. Thank you very much. Um, but then if you stuffed seven billion in my, my bank account, I'd be like, oh, my God. Um, you know, what do you do with it? <laughs> I suppose you buy your own private yacht. You put someone in space. You, <laughs> you do, I mean, I, this is something we'll get into in a minute. But people tend to increase their outgoings to reflect their incomings, as it were. Yeah. Um, while we're on the subject of billionaires, you know, there are people who through their own merits have made lots and lots of money. They happen to have had a bit of luck and been very successful. And yeah. then they have donated an awful lot of money to setting up foundations and things for people in, in real need, uh, people in poverty, etc. So they are not billionaires this to the at the moment. They are not billionaires simply because they funnel the money that they, they don't believe they personally need to people that they think do need it. So See, while, this is, while this we is are... one of my issues with, with JK Rowling again, is that like I really I really just want her to be just a horrible person throughout, but she's done an incredible amount for you know, 
for for a woman who was a billionaire, she's not a billionaire because of how much she has donated, and that's really frustrating. <laughs> yeah, but it's a weird. Okay, I don't want to go off on a tangent, but it's weird that you want her to be a horrible person rather than I, going. I don't. I don't want her to be a horrible person. It's sorry. I'm. I'm obviously. I'm. I'm kind of joking around. It's more along the lines of, um, rather than you, know, you wish she was the person. Who just did that good thing? Yes, I rather or the yeah. Many I, good things that she's I, done. I, I wish done I wish that was all that I wish that was all that it was. I wish that's you know that's the thing is that you know I I, I that's what I want. Yeah, but not let's let's not get into it. But you yeah. know what I mean. <laughs> but um, no, the point I was getting to is like oh, you know technically if you set out and you make lots of money then it's your money to do what you want with and yes yeah. it's perfectly okay for other people to look at you and go wow, you have more money than you could spend in 12 lifetimes. Maybe you should think about filtering a bit more of that back into the rest of the world. Yeah. Um, not least out of your own self-interest, because if more money circulates, then you'll probably see a greater cut of it down the line. Um, and yeah, I, I understand why people sort of point at Jeff Bezos and what's his name from Facebook? Why is it gone? Mark Zuckerberg. Zuckerberg, sorry. Yeah, and Z various other people. And it's like, yeah, okay, money has become an end in and of itself for a lot of these people, even yeah. when they do do stuff. And they do. Yeah. If nothing else, their, their PR agents get them to do things. But to then sort of completely ignore the fact that someone like J.K. Rowling was a billionaire and then just sort of gave an awful lot of it away, basically, and, yeah. and not praise that whilst at the same time condemning someone who doesn't do it doesn't make any sense to me. I don't yeah. care if you don't like J.K. Rowling, but I think we should look at the the whole situation in that respect. No, I no, I do. I agree that you've got to recognise. I can I can very clearly disagree and dislike her and choose not to engage with the material that she puts forward anymore because of the way that she has acted in certain ways. But I I cannot ignore or pretend the fact that she has not done some other incredible things yeah. um, but i guess it depends on yeah I, I think that's a whole other argument i guess it's the whole sort of attacking people no because I, I, i'm not standing up for jeff bezos i think he's a low life you know <laughs> he's yeah. genuinely not a good example of humanity but um i i guess i would rather hear more about the people who've done great things rather than but th that's the thing isn't it the people who've done these things done these great acts of charity generally don't want to talk about it and i understand that because if it was me i wouldn't want my business being discussed by all and sundry i just want to sort of here you go let's make this happen i feel passionately about this let's let's find a way to support these people kind of thing and i wouldn't necessarily want to talk about it yeah absolutely and i to be honest the people who do want to talk about it tend to be doing it because they want to talk about it yeah because it because it's a publicity stunt I personally have, I personally object to anyone who has more money than they could literally spend in a lifetime. Because then it's just stagnating, essentially. What are you doing with it? Nothing. <laughs> you can't do anything with it. There's too much. There's literally too much. You cannot spend that amount in your lifetime. Even if you tried, you couldn't. Yeah. Definitely. So, um, yeah, we've obviously just mentioned the capital in the Hunger Games. Yes. And that's basically where we are there. 
Um, but knowing where your characters come from is integral to knowing who they are. Your mm. economic background affects you in ways you aren't even aware of from a very early age. And it's probably still affecting you to this day kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so wealth, poverty and character. So we're really trying to look from the, the speculative fiction angle now. We keep going off on tangents, but we're going to yeah. try. <laughs> so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it's not just you, it's me as well. Let's be fair. <laughs> um, so, yeah, growing up wealthy or growing up poor completely shapes your viewpoint early in life. And as we've said, there's a huge scale between those two points. Those aren't the only two destinations. Um, but if you come from a well-off background, you're more likely to be confident and comfortable asking when you need or want something. So it may even go a step further than that. And because the world has always provided for you and you've never really wanted for anything, you may feel you're entitled to whatever you want. Yes. That's in sort of the nth degree kind of thing. Um, if you grew up without much money... It will similarly affect your outlook. You're less, you're likely to be less confident, less comfortable in your own skin and taking up space in the world. Um, you might not take opportunities because deep down you don't believe they are for you. If mm. you do acquire money, you may not be able to hold on to it. This is a big thing they find with lottery winners because they, it, when it goes to people who've never really had much money, they cycle. There's this psychological thing where they just cannot get their ha head around the idea of having money in. And dealing with that level of money responsibly, I say responsibly, yeah. that's not the right word, in a way that makes the money sort of continue to make money for them. Yes. If that makes sense. And so what yeah. happens is within a couple of years, they're normally back down to their original income, which is very depressing. But that they, is it's they incredibly basically, depressing. You know, money will find it. Money will always get spent in the same way that time will always get filled. Mm. Um, so you have to do this huge mental adjustment and go, well, I've won one million. Um, I can find ways of using it to improve my life and gradually build up rather than going, yay, I've got all the money in the world. I'm going to move to New York and start living like a one percenter and, you know, see how long one million lasts you in that scenario, because it's not going to be long. No. Um, OK. Uh, so, yeah. In, honestly, when it comes to sort of chip on the shoulder type stuff, it's not just the very wealthy. You can get it at the other end of the scale as well. So you may feel that because the world's never really given you much, you're entitled to whatever you can get out of the world and however you can get it. Mm. Yeah. I think it can depend, obviously, because obviously there's there's lots and lots of other factors as well, which will kind of come into it. And another thing that you also have to remember is that it's not just about whether you yourself grew up wealthy, but also about how your parents grew up as yeah, well. Absolutely. I mean, a good example of this is a ballad of songbirds and snakes, which is the Hunger Games prequel, and mm -hmm. it follows young Coriolanus Snow who became President Snow obviously mm -hmm. and he grew up having come from a very wealthy background but through what essentially was very much like the Russian Revolution mm -hmm. so he had his name and their penthouse apartment which had almost zero furniture in it and they were living on on beans basically the whole time so very poor but his only way out was through the academy and yeah. it was just I wouldn't say you're necessarily ever massively sympathetic to him, but you can see where he gets the mindset. It The thing that Collins does really well in that book is she shows uh, Snow 
basically making choices and at some point you make a choice to go down a certain route and there's no real coming back from it and that's what she she does with him um so yeah i mean madeline's absolutely right lots of things will feed into it and the fact that he wouldn't unlike his cousin accept the fact that you know what the snows were not great people anymore they weren't wealthy and influential if he'd Mm. been willing to step back he could have potentially been a happier and better person yeah but it was all tied up with this this sort of pride and we must keep the family name going yeah which isn't actually very healthy no (laughs) no it's not And, and honestly with something madeline and i were kind of touched on briefly before we got started today um is that you find that with some you know certainly here in the uk where you have the aristocracy still very much in existence they mm. their huge homes and things that they've inherited cost millions per year in upkeep potentially yeah they, they really cost a lot of money and it's nobody wants to be the earl or the count or whatever who lets you know the side down who who lets it all go to seed yeah so a lot of them are born with all this wealth that they actually can't spend because it's part of this inheritance <laughs> Uh, they can't yeah. just sell the house or whatever because, you know, the, the shame of it. And yet they can't keep it up either. And it's just really, you know, that they're, they're, they're as trapped by the system as anybody else. But I think once you're trapped in that very specific way, very much like Snow was, mm. you perhaps can't see that there are ways that you can live quite comfortably and happily without without this. It's because you're wedded to the system. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Uh, it's it's an interesting look in terms of characterization i think um yeah what i was basically getting at is even though there's a huge sliding scale there are baked in unhealthy and problematic attitudes in both extremes and all the way along yes absolutely um and again this is i think the other the other thing which prevents a lot of people talking about this is this kind of fear of offending um without understanding that this isn't about judgment um you know it, it's not a judgment on you know as you were saying Jules you know the a lot of people who have haven't really grown up with wealth and how they can't then keep hold of it after they've won the lottery and there's you know that that's not a judgment of oh look how frivolous you know, look how frivolous they are. Which you hear all the time the stupid things that people say. It's like a, ah, oh, yes, uh, you can't, you can't give these people money. They're, they're they'll they, they don't know what to do with it. They're yeah. frivolous. It's like, well, yes, because you know the other thing is that if you are if you already have wealth, if you have things like you've got an accountant, you've got you know someone who is going to take care of who's been taking care of your money for a long time. Um, they straight away will be there to advise you. They'll be, you know, you have an idea of what to do with it. You know what to do with it. Um, it, There's so many things that kind of come into play. It's not as simple as, as just people being frivolous. And it's not a judgment call either. And I think unless we talk about that, um, you know, without it, without people assuming that it's, that they're being judged um we're not actually going to be able to address some of the issues which are underneath it all 
Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the same goes for people who were born into wealthier families. It's like, okay, so the butter, the toast landed butter side up for you. Yeah. That's great. Um, what can you do from where you are? And it's not necessarily something to be ashamed of either. Um, I don't know. I think it, I, I'm not going to say that I have got a full handle on what it's like to be someone born into an aristocratic family with centuries of tradition behind them who absolutely get it drilled into them from the cradle that they must keep this thing alive even yeah. though it's kind of an unwieldy defunct system that needs a serious overhaul now and obviously i can't speak about america um or anywhere else you can only really speak about your own your own place and time mm. um with any authority and, and even then i'm obviously not part of that social class so no from me looking in from the outside it, it looks like a white elephant in the sense that um yeah there, there are holes in your plot <laughs> i think you could do something to fill them in and we could all do a lot better out of it yeah but going back to uh, speculative fiction <laughs> yeah we keep straying i'm sorry we about are that. we're very sorry <laughs> Take what we're saying and put a speculative fiction filter over it. <laughs> We're just making other people do the work for us. <laughs> no, it's giving homework. <laughs> <laughs> I stand by what I said. Anyway. Yeah. Um... <laughs> so, um, you know, if we were going to talk in real life terms, what's the solution? Well, at the moment, the only real solution is education. Yeah. Um, which means not tearing down the education system even if it's not perfect at the moment because you're having some postmodern breakdown over the way that certain things like maths are talked um sorry to throwing a bitchy one in there but that is really bugging me <laughs> um yeah it's not the system's not fair in most cases and if you start with wealth then it's like starting with talent you get a head start in the race so you yeah know, you start two miles down the track from anyone else Good for you. As I said, the toast landed butter side up <laughs> yeah. when you were born. That That's great. Uh, for most people, it's it's butter side down all the way, which means you have to train harder and run faster. Um, but that doesn't mean that you can't actually get reach the finish line. So, yeah. you know, you need education at both ends of the scale um, and all along the middle as well. When you start throwing education out of the window because it's not perfect, then what you are ensuring for future generations is that everyone will end up equally poor with a few very very insanely wealthy people at the top we've actually seen this happen in living history yes um it's incredibly dangerous yeah and the thing i've also found is that not only is it dangerous but it's something which is poised and put forward under the guise of being um radically good if yeah. that makes sense which is the um you know essentially you rally up anger against certain people and certain things um to the point that you actually you get people to destroy the things that matter to them like, for instance, um, you know, during the the riots and stuff like that, where people are running around destroying, breaking things and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, the the fact of the matter is, is that the 
the companies and stuff like that, most of them, you know, the larger companies who people should really, you know, who, who can deal with this kind of thing financially, um, it's not going to really affect them. It will affect the local people. It will affect your area. You are the person who then has to get up the following morning and live in the world that you have created. Live in the destruction that you have created. You know, these those are your neighbours. Yeah, absolutely. And you're not... If you happen to live somewhere in a suburb and you don't have a car or whatever and your nearest shop is the three mile walk away which can happen as i understand in parts of america and probably over here Mm -hmm. but more likely in sort of villages and things if you smash up that shop and the owners decide well it's not worth it let's move somewhere else that's it yeah that's it that's your resource gone and they're not even the people you're really angry at they're the people you're angry at because they're the people you can see who have slightly more than you do yeah. This this is what we were talking about, about if you remove education, which gives you access to accountability, reasoning and learning how to think, not what to think, at least it should do. Mm-hmm. Um, then what happens is everyone will end up equally poor with a few people really scraping the cream off the top. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, basically, education levels the playing field by providing opportunity and that's something that I can get behind that everyone really should be getting behind is the idea that we should be pushing education and allowing more opportunities for more people. Basically, I think the thing that happens is people sort of go, uh, the master's tools will never dis- never destroy the master's house kind of thing. And yeah. it's the fact that actually the master's house isn't at fault. Master's house isn't a bad one. The problem is that pe- most people don't have access to it. The thing we should mm. be improving is access to the house, not tearing the house down and having nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, we really that's, are... No, that's that's a really good way of putting it. Yeah. <laughs> it's like we can't I... help but live based on some of the systems that were put in place before because that's history and we can't change history, but we can yeah. learn from it. I agree. And I think the other thing is that it's also about letting go of anger in that if if the system has wronged you, it's very easy to just stay angry at it, you know? Yeah. To just let it kind of defeat you, to win against you. Rather than to say, the system did me wrong, but I'm now in a position where I can, you know, I'm in a more comfortable position within the system. And that position is going to help me care for the next generation. Um, And you can make a choice there. You can decide to be angry about what the system did to you. And... To be fair, you can be productively angry about it or you can be unproductively angry about it. And really, I recommend being productively angry about it because productively angry about it means you, you know, your pain is reflected in the way that you vote, in the way that you campaign and the way that you support things and the way that you live, but not in the way that you treat other people. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, you don't have to turn your anger into a fire hose full of napalm that you spray on everybody, particularly online, for example. Yeah, particularly against the people who are not really the ones that you should be angry with. No. Okay, right, for our last little bit, we're going to really focus on the speculative fiction. <laughs> but I think it's important, because we draw so much on real-world examples when we're writing, and most writers do, um, to have a bit of a background there. And obviously it's a huge topic. Um, we can come up with recommended reading if people are interested in going further into it, because it's far more complicated than we can get into. In fact, Terry Pratchett, having Vimes talk it through with a pair of boots, made more sense of the entire situation, as Madeline has said, mm. than, than pretty much anything else. Um, so how can we use these things in speculative fiction? Well, we've talked about it as world building. It is a really important aspect of world building. Because yes. if you're living, if your world is kind of this utopian society where everyone seems to have enough, how did they get there? That, that's an interesting question. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> um, but also, if they're not, if it's a failed utopia, then again, how do we get there? Where did things go wrong? Um, uh, you know, it's very much part of the characterization, as we've as we've also said, um, in terms of how a character will approach their own story arc will mm. depend on the mindset that they gained and on very many other things, but the mindset they gained early on in life. I think the problem we we briefly mentioned the deserving versus the undeserving poor. This is basically a concept that was cooked up and it was deliberately cooked up by the upper classes and i'm pretty sure it was cooked up in the uk but it could have been across europe i'm pretty sure france had something to do with it as well yeah i'm pretty sure the french were definitely the definitely had certain the yeah the oh them buggers <laughs> uh, sometime in the 1700s what happened over here in the uk was that prior to the 17 i mean Prior to the 1700s, there was an Enclosure Act going on where people started restricting access of poorer people to land. Yeah, It had been going on for several centuries, but, you know, up until the Norman Conquest, it was understood in legal terms that you held land, you didn't own it. So yeah. you might be in charge of X number of hectares, but you and you were the lord of that land, but you held it in trust. You, you didn't own the land so there were limits to what you could do do with it, with it and on it etc yeah and you didn't own the people on it the norman conquest happened and we got a more decided feudal system and we reeled back things like women's rights by about 200 to 300 years yay um until we got into the sort of mid medieval period um and gradually people got the concept of owning land rather than simply holding it and then in order to be worthy of owning land rather than holding it you have to do all these mental gymnastics which the church kind of helped with by saying well you were put there by god it's god's will galassenheit kind of thing hmm. ergo you are noble in spirit and character you have a duty to the land because you are the ones who are educated and well placed enough to manage it properly um this is basically a really clever PR job because it's bollocks. Um, I'm sure there were there were nobles who genuinely did think this way, but the higher up the chain you got, the less they cared about the land because they weren't working it themselves. So why would they care about it? Yeah. 
and it went on and on and on until you get to the sort of 1700s and local lords and things started going you know what if i just annex that common land i could graze my cattle on it and you had the the real push of the last push of the enclosure act where land was restricted um, to people who didn't have a lot of money and these are people who were supplementing their food and their income by grazing animals on common land etc yeah there there are reasons for this in the sense of you know the population had kind of exploded and Mm. that common land was not going to support everyone so you know there was a legal understanding that yes okay if you annex the common land and then you provide for your people but the problem was people there was no system put in place to actually provide for people or to force the gentry and the aristocracy to do so yeah so people became very crushingly poor and you know we're still feeling the echoes of this today this is this is where the entrenched class system really came in and there's lots of other things that fed into it yeah. And we imported that out to America and to other places where the British Empire went. So that's where a lot of it is. Uh, this is, you know, important, as we've said, it's a world building thing, but it's a huge thing in history. It is. It's, and the thing is, um, as but, you said, it's very important in terms of world building. And it's something which kind of gets sort of forgotten in that whenever you, when you do see world building and stuff like that people often forget that one of the things which has really really limited um you know wealth and created poverty is loss of access to land yeah. and loss of access to to basic resources you see you know for example there was a very harrowing um Ad. I think it was sort of for the for the water crisis um, in oh uh, where was it I forgive me this was when I was a child so I don't remember the exact details um, but the, they had this whole thing where you, you you know they were talking about there's this a young girl and she has to walk miles and miles and miles to get fresh water and they live beside a huge water reserve and it's privately owned water from a big company. And, you know, their ancestors would have collected water from that water reserve. And now they no longer have access to it. Yeah, that's essentially what was what was happening in the 1700s, 1800s. Um, yeah. yeah, it's basically the same thing. And it's just being practiced much more recently. I think that might have been Mozambique. Yes, I think it might have been, yeah. Um I vaguely remember, but you know, I've lived a lot longer, and there's been a lot of water crises. But... Yeah, uh, but and the thing is, like, this isn't even you know we say, oh, okay, well that's happening, and uh, oh, you know that kind of thing happens in Africa, but yeah, but it's happening in America at the moment. Yeah, absolutely, it, it's happening across the board. You know, this is and and the people who are hit by it are are the poorest. Um, because they don't have easy access to the things that everyone else takes for granted. Yeah, and this. Sorry, I was talking originally about the. I derailed my. I derailed myself um, about the deserving <laughs> and undeserving poor. Um, that that entire concept of the deserving and undeserving poor came mm. into being in the late seventeen hundreds with the sort of real push of the Enclosure Act. Basically, yeah. the deserving poor were those who 
didn't have much money but didn't then try to survive by poaching on the lord's land basically are we going to talk about going into illegal enterprises well they weren't running you know drug cartels what they were doing was pinching a few pheasants because they were starving yeah and the underserving poor were those who were willing to do whatever it took in order to survive and who could blame them so you know it might be women who were forced into prostitution or who chose to go into prostitution because you know what you can earn a lot more from that than you can from working in a needle factory yes and the other the thing is that then of course there was the you know when they made decisions like this um they were thus labeled as immoral yeah you know these are not moral people these are not godly people these are not people who deserve our help and the interesting thing is even during the medieval period and before it didn't really matter if you were poor you were poor you weren't considered deserving and undeserving that was for god to decide so if you gave arms to the poor, you gave arms to the poor, you didn't go, well, I'll give it to you, but I'm not going to help you. You're poor, ergo, I'm giving arms kind of thing. So this yeah. real deserving, undeserving poor idea, which we are still with today. I mean, if we think about, we we have a relatively good social structure in place now, certainly in comparison to 100 years ago. Mm-hmm. But even now there are people who are kind of like, oh, you want to tax me a bit more to put into things like this, and it's only going to give to people who live in council flats who are just going to drink the money or what have you. And it's like, yeah, you've imbibed that attitude of deserving and undeserving poor without really questioning the fact that it's a case of some people have so much less and what you're really looking at is how they choose to deal with it. Yeah. And the thing is that it it is, it's this weird thing of making moral judgments and i think pretty much we're all guilty of it in some respects yeah um i think we all we all kind of do it particularly when like for example if you have noisy neighbors or or something like everyone who's you know who's who's sort of lived in student accommodation or something like that may have sort of come across or, or might have been accosted by uh someone who was drunk someone who was you know rude um and you start to make judgments and you start to think oh you know is that what is that what my money's going towards going towards people who i can hear you know uh, saying nasty things people who are you know x y and z and yeah this is we're starting to get sort of somewhere which is a little bit insipid we're starting to get somewhere which is quite dangerous really yeah so um okay we've kind of just illustrated our next point by by talking through all of that which is that obviously uh it can fle- feed into plot a story and tension and suspense because it can be an ongoing political issue as we've just discussed i mean certainly yeah. the, the deserving undeserving poor thing has been going on for about 300 years here if not a bit yeah. longer yeah um <laughs> <laughs> it's it is funny because you know it's certainly something that I've become a lot more conscious of now, you know, now that I'm a little bit older. Um, I th- I think that what you really want, you know, and there are unfortunately a lot of people who, through circumstance, have kind of been aware of the fact that they are not very well off from a young age. 
but what you ideally want is for children not to have to be not to be aware not to even realize that there are money troubles at home i think that's what every parent wants who is facing that kind of thing yeah you know um so it's so you know certainly it's something i've become a lot more conscious of and it's interesting to me as well how then poverty is kind of used in a lot of fiction um because it can be used very well or it can just be used as as kind of shorthand without any real kind of look at really what you're discussing or what you're doing um so for example it's the oliver twist thing which is the ah the poor orphan um and what happens is that they they'll have a they'll have an orphan character who perhaps steals in order to survive etc and yet this orphan character speaks like charles dickens himself yeah you know like a highly educated person and they'll say oh you know this is an orphan character they don't have a formal education but i'm not actually going to look at what that might actually have meant for them i'm going to give them all the qualities of someone who has had a very very good education i'm going to give them all of the you know the skills and stuff like that etc and the kind of the whole sort of vibe like they have and they're only poor in order to be likable if that makes sense you haven't actually they're not actually poor at all yeah um and them being poor is not something which has really sort of had any effect on the way they behave on the choices and the opportunities necessarily which have been afforded to them yeah yeah definitely and i i mean i really i don't mind it people just you but it's when it's kind of put forward like that and i just start to suddenly go okay but you've kind of (laughs) what you want is you want a a charles dickens character but you don't actually want to talk about poverty (laughs) that much is obvious it's like even you know charles dickens very definitely for all his faults really definitely went into the the um the weeds on poverty he really did i mean the thing is that we can all go oh uh yeah christmas carol what a jolly tale deeply political yes incredibly political if you look at it properly like he wasn't even kidding around he just went full foaming at the mouth (laughs) okay to uh finish off let's look at some um other examples so do you want to feel to the first one yes the black magician trilogy so um i obviously really really like this trilogy this is by trudy canavan and she actually came up with this idea um i believe she's australian and she came up with the idea during i think it was the olympics was stuck there was going to be some olympics held in australia yeah um and she saw and heard about um homeless people just kind of being removed off the streets you know just being sort of loaded into the back of vans and tidied away yeah and she was just kind of well disgusted by it um you know how we can just oh we'll we'll tidy the undesirables away we're not going to actually look at the situation which has meant that they're there uh we're just going to tidy them away so that we can pretend like they don't exist um and she 
came up with this idea in her head of this kind of purge with these kind of magicians. I think she actually even had a dream about it or something like that. Um, and this is obviously the start of the book starts with this kind of this purge where the poor are being kind of moved, pushed out of the slums by the magicians. Um, now this is done for the city for a number of reasons. Um, you know, one is to prevent disease and things like that. Um, which, you know, a large gathering of people in one single place, no proper running water, etc. Um, you know, it's to prevent plagues, I believe is how it's explained. Yeah. And also, I think, to prevent fires from starting out in the city. But of course, the way that the people in the slums see it is they are just being cleared out of their homes by you know, on orders of the king by these magicians who are incredibly powerful um, and don't, you know, don't care about what they're going through and just see it as kind of like just a another day at work. And it's this, it's this class system which they just cannot understand. And of course the main character, Sonia, um, it is Sonia. Yes. Yeah, it is Sonia. It's been a while since I read it. Um, <laughs> discovers in this moment that uh, she is she has magical powers too uh, something which up until this point um, has only been found because it's only really been tested um, in the upper classes and again it's this idea of you know of education and stuff like that an opportunity so um yeah, everything gets very, very complicated for her, obviously very, very fast. But one of the things I really liked about this book and the way that they addressed poverty is that Sonia, to begin with, you know, what she wants is for the, you know, for the wizards to just go down and, and sort out the poverty and stop doing, you know, the, the purge and stuff like that. And she sort of has to sit down with with one of the other characters who basically says look okay we actually need to talk about this because and he says and i'm sorry to use this anthology but the slums and stuff like that they are like the warts um on an old man um they are a symptom of something which is much bigger and you know going down into down into the streets and just trying to kind of just organize certain people's lives are not going to sort out the much bigger issue at hand yeah um and it's this conversation they have you know about actually balance and okay yes it might not sort out some of the larger issues at hand but it's going to change the lives of a few people you know who right now could could do with a bit of a change um it's the it's the whole you know if you teach a man uh, give a man a fish and he'll eat for a day um teach a man to fish and he'll eat for the rest of his life and it's like yes that i i agree with that sentiment i like that sentiment but also if you cannot afford to teach a man to fish you could still just give him the fish like, because they can say, oh, well, we just can't, we can't afford the time to, to teach this man to fish. So, but it's better to teach him than to give, simply give things. So we're not going to do either. 
Yeah. I mean, Sonia's really, really angry because she sees magicians using what she sees as wonderful powers to create things out of, you know, staircases that will adorn homes and things, but made completely out of glass. And it's like, it's a waste of power. You could take that power down into the the slums and you could heal people. Yeah. um, Which is, you know, really important. The other aspect is that you have to generally, apart from Sonia, obviously, who is a natural, have your power awakened by someone else. And at the moment, that's something only the upper classes can afford to do but and that's the other thing is that i don't think that they're even aware of the fact that it needs to be awakened that's the thing that always got me is that yeah um it was just kind of poised as this is just a thing for the upper classes and the fact of the matter is is that it's not something which is inherent in the upper classes it's just something that the upper classes can afford to do yeah absolutely and as you get on to the third book when you have this army of actual black magicians marching on the city um sonia kind of points out well you know you have thousands and thousands of people in the slums who have magic who don't know they have magic who are just sitting ducks for these magicians to strengthen themselves on as they come into the city you mean (laughs) she you know it's a really interesting sort of look at how keeping a certain number of people in abject poverty can totally backfire on a society. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, the thing I really sort of like about it is that she kind of... She brings in these ideas where no one is wrong, if that makes sense. Yeah. You know, the some of them, they're taking very practical points of view and yes okay but you know the problem isn't the poverty and you know there's much wider and bigger problems and she's saying yeah but you can sort of wax lyrical about that all you like um but that doesn't change the fact that there are still people in poverty you know um and it's her point of view where she she turns it around from it being a political issue to a practical issue which I think was really interesting because I think the way that a lot of people see poverty and talk about poverty is as a political issue. Rather than um, a humanitarian Rather one. than a humanitarian issue, exactly. So I feel like this is something that Trudy Canavan really did very, very well because she looks at it from both sides um, and neither side is wrong. They just have very different perspectives and Ultimately, Sonia's is is a perspective which actually calls people to action. Um, so, yeah, I just felt like it was very, very well done. Yeah. Um, uh, I've briefly mentioned The Hunger Games before this, but I think it's worth going into a bit more detail, certainly from the first book. This mm. is very definitely a system which is using poverty as a measure of control. Yeah. Um. And, you know, if you read a ballad of songbirds and snakes, then you'll understand what lay behind this. But Mm. what it comes down to is essentially having one group of very, very wealthy individuals profiting and living probably quite ignorant and carefree of the labour of other people's crushing abject poverty and misery. Mm. And, you know, uh, Katniss obviously grows up in the scene, which is a, you know, in district which is a coal mining district yeah and I wonder I don't know but I wonder if Suzanne Collins was drawing a little bit on the Scottish coal miners because uh, during the 
1800s after the abolition of the slave trade and after it was illegal to own slaves in Britain and they were all freed and you and a lot of them actually ascended to quite decent positions and were making quite good money um, technically the coal miners in Scotland were still basically serfs so they were held in one place and they were they got married they had children their children went into coal mining um, they couldn't leave. They couldn't leave their lord's land. They couldn't go anywhere else. They could only marry with permission. It was basically a return to villainage. And it is that very similar thing. There there are a few things in the Hunger Games that Katniss's district gets to choose for themselves. Mm. Um, and then obviously on top of all that, you have the the humiliation and the sheer cruelty of the Hunger Games themselves, where to children a boy and a girl and they are children mm. they're under 18 uh, are chosen from every district to basically fight to the death for the entertainment of the capital and everyone else is forced to watch yeah and it's it's the fact as well that you know the the way that it's chosen you know yeah if you people are, have to eat you know <laughs> basically your, your name's going in regardless. Between the ages of, tw of 12 and 18, your name will go in to the lottery. Yeah. Um, if you have more mouths to feed, and, you know, you, you lose people in coal mining, so if you've lost the, the main breadwinner in your family, then mm -hmm. you've got to get food somehow. There's no social support system, um, yeah. which is why Katniss's family nearly d died, because her mother basically just checked out, and it was left a 12-year-old Katniss. Yeah, which is obviously not appropriate, um, but you can get bags of grain and things in exchange for putting your name in the lottery more times. Yeah, and it, it's that particular cruelty, as in you know one person has their name in sort of twelve times because they've got to provide for their family. Yeah, it. The thing is that. that particularly for sort of the, for coal mining and stuff like that um there are you know that there's a certain poverty that is associated with labors all kinds of labors like that yeah um and it's not it's not old i think that's the other thing is that we kind of we think of coal mining we think of it like ah that's the bygone past it's not well no i actually remember the mines being shut i, I was alive you know yeah <laughs> it's exactly. not that long ago i am not 300 years old yeah and the fact of the matter is is that there are parts of america where it's still kind of in operation you know or maybe not necessarily coal mines but you know there are things like that which are still in operation perhaps not to the serfdom level but in the you know you have groups of people who are kind of forced to live in abject poverty because there's literally nothing else there's no and and you have generations of people who go into it because when they're youths what other opportunities do they have yeah and the same with the army as well yeah so yeah anything dangerous and underpaid and it's in certain people's best interest to keep dangerous jobs underpaid like that and to keep yeah. people ill-educated, I think is the thing. Um, yeah. I'll briefly mention the Ozark, which is something that Alan and I have been watching. And 
it's you know, basically it's looking at it's basically kind of looking at um the drug trade <laughs> yes <laughs> but what strikes me as interesting is that you have a family in in that particular series who you know you've got Ruth who is a very savvy young woman who basically grew up in a trailer park and you are introduced to her initially because she goes to work for the main characters and mm. tries to steal from them and instead of you know raking her over the coals and giving her to the police um this the main character kind of says okay you don't ever steal from me again and i'm going to teach you how to cook the books kind of thing so mm. yeah he's getting her involved in more illegal stuff but she's obviously you know willing to do whatever it takes to survive anyway yeah and she becomes very wealthy off the back of it but she's still living in her trailer and it, it's that what they've captured really well is that whole idea of someone who has grown up disadvantaged really really disadvantaged um and the strange way that they're given a chance to better themselves and yet the fact that she has not been able to completely cut ties with her past yeah which unfortunately is kind of what she needs to do at this point to then then advance i just think it's a really interesting look and you know this is side characters but there's lots of other weird stuff going on (laughs) um I mentioned Star Trek. I also mentioned The Expanse because The Expanse covers poverty in a way that I think is really interesting. It's obviously science fiction. It's set in space. Mm. Um, You have people who on Earth are basically old money. Uh, The people on Mars who have, you know, generally some of them are sort of... Mars is more of a meritocracy but you do still have some old money where they've moved to Mars. The very wealthy have moved to Mars kind of thing because yeah. the Earth is kind of... It's not very sustainable in terms of climate and stuff. Yeah. And then you have the people who grew up in Orion's Belt, the Belters. They grew mm-hmm. up on space stations. They tend to be less well-fed, they're less healthy, and they haven't grown up within a planet's atmosphere, so their bones and their organs and things aren't as strong. So that, you know, they're already starting at a disadvantage. And mm. there is a huge amount of resentment between all three groups. Because as far as the Belters can see, people on, on Mars and people on Earth have everything. Yeah. You know, they are, you know, whereas there are people in the Belt who have never actually seen a, a, a green space. They've never actually seen land. Which is not natural for us, obviously. No. But then Mars has a tremendous amount of resentment towards Earth because Earth is obviously taking a fair bit of their resources and things, whereas mm. they're working very, very hard to terraform the planet, or they have done. Because um, Mars is, strangely enough, not the most hospitable place to live. No. <laughs> whereas then you have Earth where it's almost like our old, arist- old our current aristocratic system whereby... Yeah, you have a certain group of people at the top and they're still drawing tithes, as it were. And yet everybody lower down is kind of like, why are we giving you money? What exactly are you doing for us? Yeah. So, I mean, I've I've boiled that down to something very simple, but it's this huge political hotbed and there's all this other stuff going on. And it's it's really, really well done. Uh, I've never heard of it. you have because i've said oh after you finish star trek you have to watch the expanse and you were like mm, oh yes, yes but it's sci-fi <laughs> yeah no no you're quite right you yes 
it's all coming back to me now to be honest i think you might go hmm, this is a bit more hard sci-fi than i like i'm not sure i'll enjoy it but <laughs> i try <laughs> that's really interesting yeah i just as a, a backdrop in terms of like it being an ongoing political and humanitarian issue i find it really really interesting um mm. obviously i talked about the watch books by terry pratchett and yes you know vimes is basically i think vimes is a reflection of terry pratchett's sheer rage at the way humans treat other humans and at the injustices within a system and how we need to be able to get around these things um mm. it's it's very interesting to me that you've got the patrician who is kind of a benevolent tyrant um presiding over Ankh-Morpork and the fact that as Vime sort of comes back to himself and stops just being this washed up dead deadbeat drunk copper um, yeah. you know he and the patrician don't really get on but things start to change slightly and he's always warning Vimes not to be too clever and Vimes is always sort of like I think you'll find it was the required level of cleverness for the occasion and at the same time, the patrician's like, yes, you're useful and you are running things better and is starting to solve problems. You know, the patrician's not invested in keeping anybody poor, but it's a case of this is too big a problem for one person to deal with alone. Yeah. And there is a criminal element there that is also benefiting off the backs of the very, very poor people. That's the other thing, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, don't, don't assume you're just getting fucked from one side. <laughs> well, this is the thing that, always, that that I always find quite interesting, is you get these... Uh, this is very strange. You you kind of get these people who are putting out... put forward these ideas of, you know, um, uh, constantly saying, ah, you know, the mafia and stuff like that. They will, they will take care of... They will take care of people and stuff like that. And it's like, well, yes... If they it will suits them <laughs> because it suit when it suits them um they will do that because doing that they can essentially basically say you know it's not just about fear it's about people saying well i'm also not going to rat on the mafia and what's happening because they are currently paying my hospital bills you know yeah it, it, they they are actually investing within the the community in a way that no one else is so even though it's with criminal money we will let it pass because we need it to survive yeah you know um and so it's not this kind of necessarily this case of benevolence or anything like that it's investment um it's very easy to control people when you basically are the ones who can decide whether they live or die um and not just live or die in terms of if you don't obey us we'll kill you but in the you know we can actually make your lives very comfortable or we can make them very uncomfortable and no one is going to come and help you yeah definitely um i think that's something that tamora pierce touched on in her becca cooper trilogy Mm. Um, which I've mentioned before and yes it's young adult fiction and it's basically police procedurals but in a fancy medieval world um, a bit like The Watch in that respect and <laughs> it is just it, it's just really really well done I mean they have a they obviously have a king and they have a law enforcement group called The Dogs 
colloquially called the dogs. They're basically just policemen mm-hmm. and um, or police police officers, if you prefer. Um, and they're just. You also have a, a king of thieves and kind of like this court of miracles type place. Mm-hmm. And you know, if you are part of the criminal underground, then then the rogue, the court of the rogue, will protect you to a certain extent. They have rules, and a good rogue actually kind of works in concert with the police in the sense of yes there's some criminal activity going on and Mm -hmm. you know what you're never going to squash it all because there's not enough of you but if you pay a bribe to me and i pay a certain amount you take a bribe from me to turn Mm -hmm. your face away from things like petty thievery Mm -hmm. and things like that then you'll have more funding for your your police force and Mm -hmm. we'll still get away with doing some of our dodgy deals and things yeah and everybody has a greater level of protection because there are two forces that are looking after the basically the people who aren't involved in anything criminal who are just poor yeah because you know what the king doesn't care um and it it sort of works really well and all the dogs to a certain extent are a little bit bribable they have to be because they also have to work with the criminal underworld yeah absolutely it's it's quite interesting because um, this <laughs> it makes me think a little bit of of Loch Lamora. Yeah. Um, and in the first book, they basically uh, this concept of you know um, the you know what's it called the private piece or something like that, um, where essentially uh, the criminal underclass are allowed to steal from what is essentially the middle class. Yeah. And they have to leave the um, the upper classes alone. And if if they, as long as they do that, um, they're kind of mostly left to do what they want on their own. So it's corruption on every level. But it's very particularly, it's a corruption which allows the most, you know, uh, the the people who um, have the most not to end up, you know, losing out. And people who, at any one moment, can be could be one bad week away from complete poverty, are the ones who are being targeted. Yeah, yeah, that is the secret piece. That's what it's called. Um, and in the first book, you know, there's just this idea of, well, we're just gonna steal from the, we're gonna we're gonna break the secret piece, and we're gonna steal from uh, the people who do have money because they have money so of course we're going to steal from them because they have money but then this as the series goes on there's this idea as well which is that as you know priests of the crooked warden who is the you know the um the god of thieves and stuff like that there's a very particular mantra which is the rich will remember yeah um and Locke, who is obviously a priest, um, finds himself becoming, as he gets older as well, and becomes a lot more conscious of the world around him, um, he finds himself getting more and more riled up by this idea and by this system, which has meant that, for the most part, uh, you know, the rich have been able to get away with whatever the hell they want... And the poor have been left to fend for themselves. And essentially what happens at the end of the first book is, is, you know, the people who kind of rallied up against the secret peace got killed 
and ultimately that comes back to bite all the people who came up with the secret piece later on yeah um and so it's kind of just slowly kind of looked at and talked about and i think it's one of the elements which has made the book and made the series even more engaging for me yeah is seeing that moral discussion happening yeah definitely i mean it's it's another illustration of how you can use the that world building of you know poverty versus wealth versus everything in between to um to create these these very dynamic stories I yeah think. one thing that always kind of amuses what well, i say amuses me one thing i kind of like to see in fiction is when you see the hero sort of running off um to kind of to do to do something um you know like oh i'm just gonna borrow this horse etc or, or something like that and you see it all the time in fiction yeah. you know where they're like oh i'm just gonna grab this horse and stuff like that and there's this been this recent trend where they actually show the you know the result of that and you know the result of that is you've got these sort of people who are like that that was my livelihood you know um, yeah you, you you can't just go around stealing because you know you may think it's oh that's just a horse but it's not just a horse for me i need that horse to be able to do any kind of work um i need that you know etc all these kinds of things and so there's just been this recent trend which just shows people actually having to sort of deal with oh when the heroics are done what are the consequences of our actions yeah absolutely and on one level it's a real downer but on the other i was like yeah yeah it's another pratchett book um making no going postal and Mm. moist von litvig who i i think i'm the only person who has him as one of their favorite pratchett characters apparently there's something wrong with me but (laughs) he's a con artist and i love what he does and he sort of is confronted midway through that book that every one of his decisions where he's actually profited and come out on top and you know in fiction we kind of like to see the charming con artist come out on top yeah but every time he's done that you know he's one of the golems says you know every time you did that you sentenced a child to die or that man didn't get to do what he wanted to do that woman couldn't get to her dying mother in time everything you did affected somebody and yes you can't live in the world without affecting somebody um but you know you can make choices about how you you affect people to a certain extent yeah so it, yeah it's, it's the same thing it's the you know, i don't think people should go through life thinking well every time i take a bite of something i'm taking food out of someone else's mouth because it's it's a lot more complicated than that but I think yeah. if you're building up lots and lots of excess, as we talked with multi-billionaires, I'm sure mm. we don't have any multi-billionaires listening to our podcast. But if we did, I very much doubt it. If we did, um, <laughs> consider <laughs> consider the fact that um, you hoarding a huge amount of wealth means that there's there's less for other people. Yeah. And I think in that instance, there genuinely is less. Yeah, and the, this is the interesting thing because there is absolutely nothing wrong. I think with with having wealth 
And there's particularly nothing wrong with spending that wealth. That's what you should do with money. You should spend it, because when you spend money, it goes back into the economy, it goes back into the system. The problem is when you have so much money that you literally cannot spend it all. Yeah. Then what happens to it? It's just sat there in banks, accumulating wealth for you and for nobody else. Stop it. <laughs> Definitely. So, um, have we used any of this in our own work? Um, I think it's something I've used more in the forthcoming Melanie Beckett series, which, you know, I won't go into now. And mm. I've definitely touched on the class wealth divide in Harker and Blackthorn, although it becomes more apparent later on. Yes. Um, I would say for me, uh, it, it sort of has started to appear in some of the other books that I've worked on. Obviously, there was a little bit of it in The Sons of Thestian, in that you had Rufus, who only became a Magi because of complete sheer luck. Yeah. You know, but he didn't actually have access to to the information that he wanted. He he got he got in because he happened to be incredibly clever. And because despite the fact that yes, um, you know, he, he doesn't he, he's actually from in terms of sort of the area that he's from, he is not from one of the poorest parts of the city. By no means. They are not a they are not a poor family. They are a fairly comfortable middle class not well sort of middle class kind of family they're not very very wealthy but they you know they can comfortably live they don't have to worry year by year whether they're going to be able to to survive yeah um they have things in place which make it quite easy for them to live um and certainly obviously there are other things going on with them as well so it's not really something which i touch on properly um in the sons of thestian um but it's something which has kind of been touched on in some of my other projects which i can't really go into at the moment but <laughs> i'm i'm like because hmm, i've got so many thoughts <laughs> very mysterious but you know it, it's a huge topic perhaps we'll come back at this from another angle in the future I yeah I agree because I think it's as you said it is a really really big topic and certainly not something which we can just tackle in one sitting and not something which has really any one particular answer yeah. um so I it would be really interesting to me um if we could hear from some of our listeners what do you guys think you know do you think we've missed out on something really crucial here have we not considered something um do you have suggestions of how you know alternative points of view we'd really really like to hear them because you know we are limited obviously by our own experiences as well that can never be ignored um but yeah, I've really, really enjoyed this. I hope we haven't gone on too many tangents. <laughs> I think we've we've stayed within the realm of the subject. It's just the subject has an awful lot of sub-subject. Yes. <laughs> um, before we go, it is time for our Dissecting Dragons recommendation of the week. Um, and once again, 
it's that time i'm going to embarrass jules yay yay (laughs) um and i am going to recommend the sea in darkness which is the next upcoming harker and blackthorn book um oh my god this one guys Like, every book, Jules is like, it's going to get a bit darker, it's going to get a bit darker, and I'm like, great, great. And then there's there's a scene in this one which, whew, emotionally, I don't think I was ready for, um, for some of the things that happen. Uh, they are, you, you have gone, you, you've gone quite dark with this one. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's still funny and there's still the, the friendship and everything. But yeah, oh, there, yeah, there is a definite turn towards... I, I know it wasn't so much a complaint, but some of the feedback I've had is like, but, you know, what are Evergreen doing when we're still not seeing very much? And you're right, you're not seeing very much very deliberately because when you see the whole, oh boy, you'll really see the whole. That'll be very, very dark. <laughs> I um, remember, <laughs> yeah, when you, when you said, oh, someone said this. And because I'd actually already read this book... I was like, what are you talking about? And then I was like, oh, they've not got to that bit yet. Yeah. Mm, okay, <laughs> yeah, I, I get it. I understand. But you're wrong. Anyways. <laughs> but, uh, yes, you, yeah. get, you get a... I, th- I would say there's a major plot point you get in this one for the ongoing series arc. Um, mm. And it was a lot of fun to write. And yeah, certain things are going to be frustrating for you. Certain yeah. subplots are going to be frustrating. <laughs> Sorry. It takes time. <laughs> you do this to hurt me. Uh, yes. Specifically you, Madeline. <laughs> Specifically, Specifically me. <laughs> now, I've really, really enjoyed this book. Um, and I know that other fans of Harker and Blackthorn are really going to like it too. So look out for that one. Um, when? What is the exact release date? 8th of February. So it should be out now. Fantastic. Okay. So on that note, guys, we will say thank you so much for listening and we'll catch you guys next week. Yeah, thanks and goodbye. Bye. You've been listening to Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast. You can follow our podcast at podbean.com or from iTunes. For more information, visit our Facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash dissecting readers or check out our author websites at jaironside.com and madelinevaughan.com Please note that no dragons were harmed during the making of this podcast.